When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Johann Schmiegel, you've got the world's highest IQ. Yes, 247. Wow. Did you know that thanks to Salesforce with Einstein AI, everyone's smarter? Now everyone's an Einstein, just like you. But I'm the smartest. Not anymore. With connected data and trusted AI, everyone can give customers experiences they've only dreamed of. Oh, look, here's a few Einsteins now. Hey, hi. Hola, amigo. Everyone's an Einstein? It's okay, Johan. Let it happen. The number one AI CRM. Now everyone's an Einstein with Salesforce. Live from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound Off. The United States can never default on its legal obligations. To do so would have catastrophic economic consequences. We've been way too over reliant on foreign markets. People want to create these U.S. jobs. Bloomberg Sound Off. Politics, policy, and perspective from D.C.'s top names. The Fed, under Powell's leadership, has basically shown the banks the test in advance. Mobilizing the business community is a really good thing to do, yes. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Coming up, we've got Congressman Kevin Brady joining us to talk taxes. Adam Green, co-founder of the Progressive Change Campaign Committee, will join us. And, of course, we've got Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shianzano and Rick Davis to talk the jobs report, the debt limit, and more. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick here with Emily Wilkins of Bloomberg Government. I am Jack Fitzpatrick co-hosting today with Emily Wilkins of Bloomberg Government. We're here in lieu of Joe Matthew. Uh, Now we have Congressman Kevin Brady with us, a Texan who's the top Republican on the House Ways and Means Committee. Congressman, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me today. So let's jump straight to the headline jobs report numbers that came out this morning. 194,000 gained in September. This was lower than expected. Uh, what do you attribute to that to? Why was this a, a disappointment in September? Yeah, you know, I don't think any economists dreamed that the jobs numbers uh, for September could be worse than August. But even with the dumbed-down expectations, they are here. I think overall it's it's a little dreadful news for our slowing recovery in the United States. I know it is for a lot of our Main Street businesses who are still struggling to find workers. And while we saw wage growth uh, again this month, you know, we'll know in about a week or so uh, how much higher prices are rising as well. The other thing I've noticed is that at this point, uh, as of this morning's report, you know, President's job deficit, the difference between what he pledged jobs he would create with his American Rescue Plan and what he's delivered is now grown 944,000 jobs short of his promises. There's, there's real concerns on the jobs numbers. There certainly is in, you know, this work, uh, workforce shortage. And I think for a lot of families still, these higher prices that continue to to plague them is is a big challenge. So what do you think this says on the monetary side? Do you think that the the disappointing numbers lately would change at all the Fed's tapering plans? Or or what are your expectations there? You know, I don't think this country needs more stimulus uh, at this point. 
what I think we need uh, are no tax increases, especially on job creators as they're trying to get back on their feet and get people hired again. We don't need more spending out of Washington, certainly not trillions, that would drive uh, prices higher, but also create disincentives for Americans to reconnect with their job. That's what that $3.5 trillion spending and tax package uh, does. And I think the Fed needs to not be in denial where this worker shortage is going and where these prices are going either. I think this is, uh, so far, they've been slow to recognize the seriousness of it and the policy decisions in Washington that make it worse. So, you know, I, I think they need to continue to back out of that emergency COVID stimulus. The, the economy's in a different place right now. Hmm. Congressman, I am a little bit curious because I remember a couple months ago, there were a number of states, Texas included, that decided to end that federal supplemental unemployment insurance because there were concerns that that higher unemployment payments were incentivizing people to not look for work. But those federal benefits ended in early September, and yet we still had this really sluggish month for job numbers. I'm wondering, from when you talk with your constituents, when you talk with others out there, why do you get the sense that there are aren't more people returning to the job market at this time? You know, um, Goldman Sachs uh, estimates that as many as 300,000 Americans would return to the workforce this month, uh, in big part because those federal unemployment benefits uh, were finally ending in all the states. What I don't think people have noticed is that there are more barriers that have taken their place. For example, the child tax credit which was uh, created by Republicans, actually, in 1997 to help with the cost of, of raising kids and also as an incentive to return to work. You know, in the last COVID bill, they took away any requirement for earnings or work. And so we're, for, for the first time, so we're hearing from businesses that the child tax credit that has landed in, in families' paychecks about a month ago are a new barrier to reconnecting workers. Some have been losing workers because of that. The other factor, I think, too, is that um, uh, the Affordable Care Act, whose uh, income levels and subsidies were enhanced a big way during COVID, is still in place. So the jobless can get, at times, as good or better health care at home than, than, again, reconnecting workers. So I think there's a couple other factors in there as well. Obviously, uh, you know, schools... Uh, not all uh, reopening, I think, as everyone had hoped, has had some impact here. But there's a, there's something deeper, and I appreciate you guys look deeper into these job numbers. But what troubles me is that of the few jobs gained, nearly half of them are over 55 years old. That's, that's twice the proportion and sort of goes against the everyone's retiring thinking here. The workers we really need, those young and middle-aged ones, 25 to 44, those numbers were again stagnant, meaning they're dropping out of the workforce in pretty big numbers. So we're short about 4.5 million workers pre-COVID. I don't see the policies in place to reconnect them back and draw them off the sidelines. That, That troubles me. 
Congressman, I want to make sure, uh, since you're on Ways and Means, I've got to ask about the big tax news of the day, this international tax agreement on corporate taxes among 136 countries, uh, that among the agreements they made was a, a minimum rate of a 15% corporate tax rate. How does that affect us here in the U.S., especially as Democrats are talking about raising the U.S. corporate tax rate? Yeah, so the, the international uh, global minimum tax doesn't really uh, help us at all. In fact, I think it's a recognition that America is sort of self-sabotaging itself with the high, a major increase in the corporate rate and then changes in the international provisions that really advantage these foreign countries and foreign workers. So, you know, I think they're, they're making a nod to raising uh, and creating the global minimum tax. They know it'll be lower than ours. They know it'll be far lower than our 26.5% corporate rate. And uh, they're, they're going to be seeking, if you look closely, they're not only delaying the implementation, they're going to want significant carve-outs and exemptions for their countries. And, and at the end of the day, I think what Secretary Yellen will bring back to Congress for approval is, is an agreement that, that again makes makes it better to be a foreign company or work than ours, and will take a pretty good bite out of America's tax revenue. The other part of these discussions, in which we are negotiating from a um, position of weakness, is on these digital services taxes. And, I, and by some estimates, the U.S. could give up up to hundred billion dollars of our tax uh, base to these foreign countries. So there is a lot more to this global discussion than what this rate might be. Well, Congressman, there's certainly the global discussion, and then there's also the domestic discussion. Yes, I mean, as as uh, Democrats continue to, their work on President Biden's social welfare and tax plan, uh, I know that Republicans are not supposed, you know, that there, we, there's no expectation that Republicans are going to be supporting that. I know you guys have concerns about the levels of spending. But I am curious, you know, the, the argument that Democrats are putting out there is that there are a number of very wealthy corporations, very wealthy individuals that are not paying their fair share in taxes. And if you do look at, at polling, there is a sense that a majority of Americans polled usually say that, that they agree with that. Uh, I'm wondering, is, is that something you agree with? Is this something that maybe needs to be looked into, even if, say, you don't think Democrats are going about it the correct way? Yeah, you know, I don't think that's a fair description of America's tax code uh, or uh, the successful, you know, according to the OECD, the same group that uh, released that statement today, America has long had one of the most progressive tax codes uh, in the world. Our, our rich pay a very big share of the overall tax burden. And after the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, that actually grew. So, you know, the top 1% are paying about 40% uh, of the tax burden. The top 10%, uh, nearly three-fourths. Uh, and, but, but what our tax code has done, the current one that we reformed, is that it drives investment into workers' paychecks, into expansion of jobs and growth. That's why we saw income inequality begin to shrink first time in half a century. That's why we saw a lot of research, investment, jobs come back to the United States. And it lifted, we lifted millions out of poverty by creating the right incentive to invest in America, expand in America, invest in your workers. Our worry is that what's unfair is that raising these taxes all up and down the, the, the line will slow this economy, 
will land on workers and middle-class families and actually hurt the very people, I think, that need to be helped the most. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think the fairness measure, uh, um, uh, claim isn't uh, accurate, and I think it uh, it ignores the fairness of how low-income workers and middle-class get hurt when you try to target the successful. They pay the price. Right. Well, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us, Congressman. Really appreciate the insights. Jack and Emily, thanks for having me. Take care. So we covered a lot there. Uh, Emily, I just got to ask, give me a headline. What's your, your main takeaway from that? I mean, one thing that's really come out of this jobs report that I think everyone's asking is why? Why are these numbers still so sluggish? Kids are going back to schools. The supplemental unemployment benefits are done. I thought it was really interesting that the congressman said, pointed out the fact that there are other federal supplements out there, including that child tax credit that began over the summer. I mean, that's something that Democrats are really hoping to expand. It'll be interesting to see if Republicans continue to make the case that that contributes to high unemployment. Yeah, the the focus on the child tax credit is going to be a really significant one. Coming up, let's keep this conversation conversation going on uh, those issues, the tax issues, the broader economy. We're going to have Rick Davis and Jeannie Sheehan-Zano join us. For now, I'm Jack Fitzpatrick with Emily Wilkins of Bloomberg Government. This is Bloomberg. Face it, your business is unique. It faces challenges and risks that are specific to your industry and to the skills you and your team bring to every challenge. You need experienced insurance professionals. The Hartford accepts the challenge. The Hartford understands that protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can help provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-sized companies like yours to easily manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, the Hartford faces any challenge to deliver innovative, customizable solutions that your industry and your unique company demand. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick with Emily Wilkins of Bloomberg Government. We're subbing in today for Joe Matthew. We also have Rick Davis and Jeannie Sheehan-Zano, our all-star panel, the Bloomberg politics contributors who make us uh, help us make sense of all the economic news happening today. Uh, let's start with what Larry Summers, the former U.S. Treasury Secretary, had to say uh, when he spoke to Bloomberg's David Weston on Bloomberg TV's Wall Street Week. This was first on the jobs report when he said we got a lot of demand, not so much supply uh, on the economy. He said it's in a difficult situation still. Uh, and he also says the global global corporate tax accord is, in his words, the most important economic agreement of the 21st century. Here is Larry Summers speaking to David Weston. The most important global economic agreement of the 21st century so far. It's important in reality, because it's going to fortify tax collections from corporations, for companies all over the world. It's important in principle, because instead of countries running a race to the bottom with respect to taxing business income, they're now going to level up in a way that's going to be fairer and permit tax reductions 
on working people all over the world. Well, Rick Davis, I, I want your takeaway on this because just in the last segment, we heard from Congressman Kevin Brady, the top Republican on the House's tax writing committee, uh, who really downplayed the importance of this as it pertains to the current uh, debate in the U.S. over our own corporate rate. So, Rick, who's who's right? Is this a, a massive deal or is it not the kind of thing that should factor in to our own domestic debates right now? Well, I think you uh, really put it wisely in that uh, if you're looking at just a domestic tax structure that we have and like whether or not our current 21% corporate rates, uh, how that's going to be affected by it, then you'd say, yeah, no, it's not. It's not much of an effect. But if you look at the global economy and all the tech companies, especially, you know, who have shifted their profits uh, to low tax or no tax havens uh, in a way to avoid a corporate tax and the amount of revenue that that has uh, lost to jurisdictions around the world, then then it is a big deal. So uh, it just depends upon what point of view you have. And uh, I thought what was interesting about what Larry Summers said is that he says this is so far the greatest thing that's happened in the 21st century in Texas. What does he think's coming next? Yeah, that that does seem to be the the key question on that. Now, I'm I'm curious uh, about the jobs report as well that we discussed with Congressman Brady. Uh, Jeannie, obviously, the Republicans are are not painting a particularly positive uh, picture of job gains, and the the report that came out this morning was lower than expected. Uh, what what does that actually mean, though? Should we be focusing on the headline number of 194,000, or what what it really is the takeaway from today's? jobs report in your view? You know, we did hear, and a lot of the headlines echoed that, you know, it didn't meet expectations, which were half a million. But as the president said when he came out and made his remarks today, there were positive signs there. There was the fact that the unemployment rate dropped from 5.2 to 4.8. Those are very good numbers. But I think the broader perspective here is something that we ignore oftentimes, which is that the president does get the benefit and the criticism when the economy is doing well or, or in a slump. But the fact is, is that the president doesn't have as much control over the economy as we like to think. And in this case, what the economy is responding to, and the president is right about this, is the pandemic. These numbers were collected. The end date was mid-September. He's right. That's when Delta was soaring. It's going to take time to get us out of a self-imposed um, you know, shutdown at, that we were in. So I think we've got to be realistic here about how much the president controls the economy, whether that president is Trump or that president is Biden. You know, Rick, I, I also want to ask you a similar question that I asked the congressman, because I, I think this is something that everyone's trying to figure out right now. I mean, why aren't these job numbers stronger? You know, initially, uh, Republicans said that it was because of that supplemental unemployment insurance. That's no longer a thing. Uh, Democrats said it's because kids haven't gone back to school yet. Well, now a lot of schools are open. What What is going on here? What's happening with these numbers? Well, I mean, the, when you look inside of it, uh, there there aren't very many good indications that we're in a trend. I mean, July, there, you know, this number was at a million. And so what's happened in the last two months? Well, you know, we, we stopped paying extra unemployment insurance. Well, hell, that, that, sh that should have gotten everybody back into the employment line like Republicans have been uh, pro proposing. But uh, even Kevin Brady, who you just interviewed, pointed out that 50 percent of this 194 thousand number for September, you know, are 55 years and older. I mean, that really defies what we thought was missing in the job 
uh, market, which was driven by uh, leisure and, and, and lodging and, and, and hospitality. So uh, it's kind of hard to tell where we go from here. A lot of people's expectations have actually not materialized. And so I think Democrats are looking for an answer. But Republicans thought that this was going to be uh, a better report because they, they really truly believed that um, the extra unemployment insurance, when it ran out, would drive people back to work. And right. the September number doesn't show it. Well, looking at the details of this report, some of the private sector numbers were significantly better, but actually, in particular, public education jobs declined in September. Seems like a strange time for that to happen. Jeannie, real quick, what, what do you think caused that? Well, I think this is what we're going to be seeing as a fallout from the pandemic and the shutting down. And I think you're absolutely right to point that out. That was one of the oddities. But as we saw when this report was released, that was to a certain extent poo-pooed. They said, you know, this will right. recover at some point. Coming up, we're going to talk to Adam Green of the Progressive Change Campaign Committee. Talk to him about all the politics leading into 2022. This is Bloomberg. Broadcasting live from our nation's capital, Bloomberg 99.1, to New York, Bloomberg 1130, to Boston, Bloomberg 1061, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew. Democrats need to shave more than one trillion dollars off of President Joe Biden's social welfare, climate and tax plan. What is going to be on the chopping block? What will have to go? We hash out what progressives want and what they're willing to give with Adam Green next with the Progressive Change Campaign Committee. This is Emily Wilkins filling in for Joe today with my co-host Jack Fitzpatrick. We are now joined by Adam Green, the co-founder of the Progressive Change Campaign Committee. They are active in progressive politics. They are active in elections. Adam, we are so glad that you are able to join us. Uh, thank you for being here today. I just want to jump in and start right now talking about President Joe Biden's big policy push that Democrats are currently working to negotiate. Uh, you know, a week ago, President Biden, he came to Congress. He said, hey, uh, the bill's not going to be $3.5 trillion. We're going to need to bring it down to around $1.9 trillion, $2.2, trillion. And now the debate is on on how to cut funding from the bill. And I just wanted to start by asking you, I mean, when you talk to lawmakers and other progressive advocates, what is the thought about how you take 3.5 and bring that down? Got it. Well, great to be here. I would start off with two broad thoughts based on our conversations with you know, the White House, House and Senate folks pretty regularly. The first is that you know, this is definitely not a progressive versus moderate thing. This is the kind of situation where uh, progressives in Congress are right alongside the most swing district House and Senate Democrats and the White House in trying to get as much good stuff into this bill as possible, in large part because it's good policy and in large part because it's great politics for Democrats to actually run on promises kept in 2022. Um, the second thought is that, you know, it's less about what are we going to take out of the mix and more about what can we live with only being funded for two years or three years as opposed to the full 10 years that are allowed under these budget rules, right? There are some things that just because of logistics have to be 10 years. There are other things like climate that are so existentially important 
that we absolutely must fund them big and fund them for that entire 10-year span. But then there might be some things we have to bite the bullet and say, okay, well, maybe the child tax credit is extended for three years, not eight, not 10, and go all the way down the line, you know, expanded health care, et cetera. So I think that's really kind of the, the big question progresses and Democrats as a whole right now. What can we afford to just have funded for a couple of years and then live to fight another day and hopefully win big in the next election? But I do want to say that we have heard from lawmakers, uh, Senator Joe Manchin, one of them, and, and I've even heard from a couple more moderate members in the House, even more centrist members in the House, who have said, you know what, instead of doing a lot of things all at once, let's just take a couple things, let's make sure they're well-funded, that the policy is solid, and let's make sure that we do those. I mean, is that is that sort of the right way to go about doing it instead of trying to do a ton just trying to get a few things and make sure that those few things are, are, are really well done? I'm, I'm really glad you put your finger on that, because I think that is, that is the threshold question. Um, I consider that language to be code. That is code by a couple, a very small minority of corporate-aligned Democrats who are basically shrouding a corporate agenda in the language of seeming logical or rational. Oh, let's just do a few things well. What they really mean is we don't want the role of government to be helping people with child care or helping people with dental or vision uh, or hearing you know, for our grandparents. We don't want the government getting into home care for, for people who need it, end-of-life care. Um, that's what they're saying. And what they're also saying is we don't want our corporate donors to have to pay taxes in order to fund those things. Therefore, insert that message. Let's just do a couple things right. You know, that's, it's really a recipe for Democrats losing power in 2022, because all of these things that we've campaigned on for years and that Joe Biden won and people like Ossoff and Warnock in Georgia won on will not get done. And then we depress our own turnout and we lose. Who would be very happy about Republicans take, taking over? The same corporate donors who are funding those few corporate Democrats. So, no, that's that's not the approach. I, I know for a fact that that's not where top you know, White House or Democratic leadership want to go. But it is a very pernicious talking point, And I'm really glad you brought it up. Well, Adam, your your language on corporate influence is pretty aligned with what we've heard lately from Senator Bernie Sanders, who just uh, in the last couple days has gone on a, a little bit of a, a seemingly anti-Mansion press tour. He called a, a presser with reporters uh, to say this is about the corruption of American politics and to say Sen- Senators Mansion and Cinema were being obstructionists and not really uh, negotiating in good faith. What do you make of the sort of outwardly public uh, aggressive stance to try to pressure Senators Manchin and Cinema, uh, particularly by Bernie Sanders. Face it, your business is unique. It faces challenges and risks that are specific to your industry and to the skills you and your team bring to every challenge. You need experienced insurance professionals. The Hartford accepts the challenge. The Hartford understands that protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can help provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-sized companies like yours to easily manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, the Hartford faces any challenge to deliver innovative, customizable solutions that your industry and your unique company demand. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, he, he's joined by Joe Biden and others. Uh, Joe Biden just a couple of days sure. ago said, you know, we're down to two senators. I need these two de- senators to do the right thing. 
So it's not, again, once again, it's not a progressive versus moderate thing. It really is, you know, I think the stat is 96% of lawmakers in Congress versus the remaining, you know, holdouts. But this, this gets right back to the corporate influence question. And again, I'm glad you brought that up. You know, it's super important for people to know that the 10 or so House Democrats that were holding up the work, who were coordinating with Mansion Cinema, and more importantly, coordinating with the Business Roundtable and the Chamber of Commerce, you know, the corporate backers, these are people from relatively safe seats. Everybody knows Josh Gottheimer. He won pretty comfortably with, you know, 7.6% as margin. But part of his crew was this guy, Ed Case, who won in Hawaii by 44 points. Jim Costa won in California by 18.8 points. I'll write down the list. Henry Quaylor in Texas, 16 points. Another guy, 13 points. Another person, 12 points. These are not the, the swing district Democrats. These are people. So why? Why are these people who represent kind of bright blue districts obstructing the Democratic agenda? It's the money. And that's why we, you know, the real frontliners, the people like Alyssa Slotkin and Haley Stevens in Michigan, uh, three people who actually sent emails to our national email list at boldprogressives.org this past week, Andy Kim in New Jersey, who won a Trump district twice, um, Angie Craig, who won by two points in Minnesota. Yeah, uh, Adam, Cartwright if I can from, just from jump in for a second, because I think All you're making back better. a great, Adam, I can just jump in. I think you're making a great point here. Very quickly, just a couple of seconds left. Joshua Green, great story right now in Bloomberg Business Week about how much they need to get, how much Democrats need to get this package done. If something does not get done, how much more difficult do the midterms become? Uh, exponentially. Uh, exponentially. Adam, we need to well, make sure that people can vote and to motivate to vote. And that's why we got to get this stuff. Adam, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us. That was Adam Green, co-founder of the Progressive Change Campaign Committee. We've got more discussion coming up about the week ahead. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Emily Wilkins here with my co-host Jack Fitzpatrick on this Friday afternoon. Bloomberg Sound On is brought to you by SEI. Visionary asset managers find opportunity where others are challenged. Exploit disruptions potential with SEI's global operating platform. Find out how at SEIC.com slash IMS. Well, the weekend is almost here. Jack and I are joined by our expert panelists, Rick Davis and Jeannie Shianzano. It's going to be a three-day weekend for some of us, but next week just got a little more hectic for House lawmakers. They were supposed to spend the week in their districts, but are getting dragged back to D.C. on Tuesday night to vote for the Stop Gap Debt Ceiling Measure. Uh, this isn't expected to be a difficult vote to pass like we saw in the Senate. Uh, we already know that Republicans are not needed to pass it through the House and Democrats already voted once to pass this debt limit last Friday. Now they're just doing a stopgap until December 3rd. Uh, Jeannie, I want to come to you, though, on this. I mean, Republicans have said that for them, uh, the debt limit is obviously a a very difficult vote. But I'm wondering for some of these more fiscally conservative Democrats, I mean, voting to raise the debt limit once last week, once this week, and now once at some point before December 3rd, is that going to impact them at all to have to take this vote several times? I think so. And I think that was part of what Mitch McConnell had in store. I know a lot of the reporting on this has been 
you know, a top line view of this as a, a win for the Democrats and a loss for McConnell and a blinking, if you will, of McConnell. But I do think that there is something here that is problematic for the Democrats. And that is the fact that the chaos that you and Jack live through every day on, on, on Capitol Hill is going to continue at least now through December. Less focus on what the president needs to focus on, which is what you were just talking about, and that is getting the Build Back Better agenda through Congress. And it is hard for moderate Democrats, fiscally conservative Democrats, many of whom are facing re-election. And of course, now we are just a year out from that. So, Rick, I want to ask you, you know, on this extension that's supposed to be to December, anytime I hear that Congress is trying to do something in December, I get worried about even Christmas plans, even if it's supposed to be December 3rd. There's the whole extraordinary measures that Treasury can use. There's the fact that this is an increase rather than a suspension of the debt limit. So we don't know exactly when this is going to come down and when the deadline is going to be. Just lay this out for me. How hectic is the month of December going to be? Is this... it looks like that month is sort of when everything comes to a head and it's just going to be terrible to me. But what do you think, Rick? Yeah, I mean, the Senate and the House are really good at getting their backs up against the holiday wall, right? They they set I think the only time real deals get done is when they're getting ready to finish out right. the year and go out for Christmas. So I think that uh, it just depends on what's on the table. We know that the debt extension uh, or lifting and the budget uh, are going to be due that day. Uh, and, and my guess is that, that neither one of those may make it that far. Um, I'm, uh, you know, there seems to be a momentum to try and get the debt and the budget and reconciliation done before these deadlines occur, uh, which I assume then would drag in the infrastructure bill. So it could be that some of this stuff gets done in advance of the third. But my bet is you're, you're midnight on the third. They're going to stop the clock in the house, as you've seen them do before, and they spend, you know, an all-nighter trying to figure out how to get this done. Uh, my go- my guess is they'll get it all done, uh, but it's going to be messy in the process. But I I must admit this is going to be the craziest winter in Congress that we've seen in a long time. And that's saying something because I feel every December in Congress is is a bunch of deadlines, last minute agreements. Uh, you know, Rick, Jamie, you guys are are absolute experts and pro, but but Jack, you are our budget guru over at Bloomberg Government. Try to be. You've got the daily newsletter. You are in this stuff. And one of the big questions this week, it, it's a little technical, but it's really important. We keep saying December third, December third, December third. But if you go back a couple years ago. The last time they had this debt ceiling debate, they said, well, we're going to suspend it until July 31st, 2021. But here we are in October. We still haven't technically raised it yet. And we're still going thanks to these extraordinary measures that add a couple extra months. Is that something we're going to see this time? Is December 3rd actually more like February 25th? Uh, Yes and no. For one, there are some limitations on the extraordinary measures that they can use just for for complex reasons. But really, the issue is not so much the extraordinary measures, but the fact that it is an increase in the debt limit rather than a suspension this time. Uh, The Republicans are saying, if you're going to do this, you need to increase the number because ultimately Democrats will take it up to something greater than 30 trillion and the Republicans can campaign on that and blame them for that. But when you do that, you don't actually know when the deadline is. We keep saying December 3rd because that's the goal that Republicans had and they did the math. I'm sure they're good at math, but this is less like the deadline officially is December 3rd and more like they're throwing a dart at a dartboard. So it's in that range. So December could be crazy 
or it could be split off and, and they do government funding in December and the real deadline turns into January for debt limit. So it is very, very hazy. So bottom line, just the, the craziness isn't going to end if, if you were looking for a deadline for that. We don't we don't have one for you. Uh, I also wanted to this this week start off with a really interesting incident with Senator Kirsten uh, Senma. She teaches at, at a university in Arizona, and someone f- tried to follow her into a bathroom to convince her to vote for President Biden's uh, social welfare, climate change, and tax package. Rick, you are no stranger to Arizona senators who march to the beat of their own drum. And I just wanted to see if you could give us some insight here. I mean, when it comes to how the White House needs to talk to Senator Sinma, how to reach her, how her colleagues need to address her, how how do you sort of see this playing out, these negotiations that are going on uh, between the White House, the congressional Democrats, and, and one of the two holdout senators at this point? Well, Emily, I, I do think it starts with Senator Sinema. Uh, and as you say, she does uh, uh, go to the beat of her own drum. I mean, she's quite independent. Uh, she models herself after John McCain. If you look at a lot of her speeches, she talks a lot about him. Uh, and, and I would say it's not unusual for senators to be protested at, at, at universities in Arizona. I was with John McCain many times when we had to run for the doors and get ahead of the protesters. Um, so, and that's a rite of passage in Arizona. So I don't, I don't allocate too much to that. But, but I must say, she's going to be a hard nut to crack. If they think they're going to get her on board with anything in a sort of negotiated settlement on this reconciliation bill, um, uh, they, they're going to have their work cut out for her. And, of course, her backstop. Uh, is Senator Joe Manchin, who's given her plenty of breathing room on this because he's been the public face of the resistance uh, to the big spending uh, reconciliation bill. So I think she's in a very good place. Um, uh, she has a lot of cards for her. Uh, she's not up for re-election for another th- two years or three, I guess, four years based on this current cycle. And uh, and she's got an enormous amount of political capital in Arizona. So uh, my, my guess is it's on her terms where, where she comes down on this. Um, uh, uh, is probably going to be in uh, the same location, uh, maybe some different policy prescriptions than Joe Manchin. But they're going to get a bill done probably, and she'll take credit for it once it's signed by law. So I went to Arizona State University, and just to clarify, I never chased Rick out of any of our buildings. I just <laughs> I want to be on the record on that. But Rick, I want to I want to understand the mechanisms that go into this. If you're Kirsten Cinema, or if you're her staffers, and there's all this public pressure on her. Where does it come from? Do they feel the pressure when it's other senators criticizing them? Are their phones ringing off the hook? What is what is the actual way uh, that that they feel the pressure? Where does it come from, and does it actually do anything? Does it affect them? Yeah, I mean, it, it always affects them to have their colleagues uh, mad at them or pressuring them, right? I mean, these are the the Senate is a very collegial place. Uh, we don't see it on the surface, but underneath, um, uh, every one of these people want to get along with some group of them, right? But, but at the end of the day, um, she's a lot of support at home, and that was always a comfort for people like John McCain, who would go up and do battle uh, in in Washington and upset his his fellow senators quite a bit, but he knew he could go home and, you know, he'd have a loving embrace by Arizona voters. And and she has that same kind of uh, motivation. She focuses on those people who, you know, brought her to the game and nobody in Washington's in that category. So, um, 
and she's tough, uh, but she also got great relationship skills. I mean, I know a lot of Republican senators who love doing business with her. So it, it, in her own caucus can be tough sometimes, but she's got her own network of uh, support amongst uh, members, both Democrat and Republican. And that's saying a lot for, for Capitol Hill these days where uh, polarization mm-hmm. seems to be the norm. Right. Jeannie, you know, now that we're on the topic of colleges, I wanted to see if you could put on your professor cap very quickly here. You're working with college students, many of them in this next upcoming generation. They've come of age in a deeply polarized America. How is that impacting what they see in politics and political engagement? Are we going to see more of them following more senators into more restrooms? Uh, we, we certainly might. I don't think that's new. I think what is new is that we have now technology which allows us to see it and play it over and over again on cable news. And I would just say we do hear a lot about polarization in this country. There's also an awful lot that people agree on, and we don't hear enough about that. And so I always try to underscore that to students. There's an awful lot of agreement on things that we can address in this country. For example, climate change. And so the more we talk about those issues and the more Congress moves in that direction, the better off they will be. Absolutely. Well, we still have plenty of negotiations ahead of us, plenty of controversy left to cover, but we are going to have to leave it there for today. Thank you so much to Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano, as well as our other guests, uh, Congressman Kevin Brady, Adam Green with the PCCC. I'm Emily Wilkins here with my co-host Jack Fitzpatrick. Have a lovely weekend. This is Bloomberg. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-size companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com.